Welcome to the world of fiction, where we're lying, but that's okay. One prepared host, two neurodivergent nerds, two authors dig deeper into the lies that expose truths. If you're a fan of fiction with a curious mind, tune in each week for discussions on speculative worlds, fandom, the industry, and creating. Let's talk about fandoms. I am your host, J.S. Garrity. And I'm the host who's winging it, Ludlow Adams. For our new listeners out there, every week I choose a topic and prepare it because I'm a researcher and a planner. And then I find out the topic about a half an hour before because I'm an improviser and good on my feet. Let's get into it. So let's just first introduce ourselves as fans. Yeah. Um, we've introduced ourselves as writers, but we're also obviously fans yeah. of fantasy. Um, so I, it, obviously we both like Brandon Sanderson. We've mentioned him before. I love Neil Gaiman. I love Ursula K. Le Guin. I love um, the King Killer Chronicles, Pat Rothis. I love the um, Riddle Master trilogy. I am a big fan of the intersection between fantasy and literary style or um, deep, important topics um, in the sense of that, you know, I believe that fiction is holding up a mirror to, to humanity mm-hmm. and I enjoy exploring the human condition through fiction. Yeah. Um, obviously, Lord of the Rings I love Lord of the Rings. Yeah. That's actually where I got my start. Well, not Lord of the Rings itself, but The Hobbit. Uh, I think when I was six in first grade, I checked it out of our public library. It took me pretty much the entire month to get it read, but man, I was in love. And um, so ever since then, if it has fantasy or epic fantasy, there's a good chance I've picked it up. Whatever sounds pretty neat, I will pick it up and read it, Uh, including some some genre blended romance, in fact. Ah, so that's kind of what we enjoy. Outside of fantasy literature, um, we both have played D&D and mm-hmm. other RPG games. Um, my husband is a, a DM for, I think, two games right now, mm-hmm. but he has done three at once before mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and has played in them as well. And I, I've only ever played in his games and I... I keep him on his toes and drive him nuts sometimes, but <laughs> that's part of the fun for me. The, the joys of being married. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just generally enjoy all of the different facets of fantasy fandom. It's yeah. so much more than just books yeah. and movies and shows. It's, I mean, it's really participation heavy yeah. and... I enjoy a lot of those aspects. Yeah. And and so just to kind of fill in those details for me, yeah, I've obviously Dungeons and Dragons and any other uh, role-playing game that somebody wants to throw my way, um, I will play it most likely. Board games, card games, miniatures games. Um, I'll spend, you know, a couple of hours with my friends playing a miniatures game or something and, and just having a great time. And yeah, I mean, all of them have very specific fandoms and those mm-hmm. fandoms often have some issues. So mm-hmm. I, I'm kind of excited to be able to talk through that a little bit today. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about the the politics of, of some of these fandoms. First, I want to briefly overview what literary citizenship is, because I want to discuss the question of if literary citizenship extends to the fans. Mm -hmm. Um, So literary citizenship is basically the idea that as a writer or an author or an editor, anyone in the book industry has a responsibility to support others in the industry, to be respectful, Mm -hmm. to just generally be a good person, <laughs> but also to to be involved. It, it's really important to the writing community that 
um, people support each other's work. Mm-hmm. It's not the like hermit alone in, in a cabin in the woods typing on a typewriter and you never talk to anyone else. Uh, maybe it lurked that way at one point in time, but it doesn't anymore. You have to be an active participant in the community, not because somebody's going to knock on your door and get you in trouble if you don't, but because that is how you can be successful in this, in this work, in this industry. And it's just, it's good to, to help each other out and lift each other up. That's why a lot of authors will like feature other people's books and other works. And um, it's just part of being a good literary citizen. Yeah. I would say that our species is at its best when we work together, that more than anything is what we're good at. Well, I mean, we're also really good at pattern recognition and telling stories, but it's it's really our ability to work um, in in small groups, large groups, et cetera, that defines who we are. And I think it just makes good practical sense. Even if you don't particularly want to be a decent person, maybe you're a little selfish or something, it makes total sense to help each other out because then for you to help other people, they're going to turn around and help you out as well. Mm-hmm. Although you definitely don't want to try that completely transactionally or you'll get that reputation. Right. Um, you know, I have a friend who is fairly transactional and, you know, we all just know it and understand it and we're able to work with it. But when you're asking other people for help, you know, it, it, yeah. it may not always work out the best. Mm-hmm. It's about developing genuine relationships. And as those develop naturally and sincerely, you've made connections with people who you are willing to support and who are willing to support you in the future. Um, Now that doesn't translate perfectly to fandom, but I think that it's worthwhile to talk about what good fandom citizenship might look like yeah because there are some issues in and especially the like really niche and um super fandoms yeah yeah there's a a constant refrain of gatekeeping um in in a lot of fandoms well you're not a real fan Mm -hmm. if you don't know this super obscure story about you know Mm -hmm. your favorite your supposed favorite character or something that stuff kind mm-hmm. of drives me crazy. Um, and then there's also the whole issue of harassment and the like, um, especially of young women. Um, yep. Been so, there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it can be really ugly sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Well, it is really ugly. There's just no other way around it. Um, yeah. And what you'll find is that in good spaces and good groups and good conventions or fandoms or something, they will ostracize or push those people out pretty quickly. Um, sometimes yeah. not even officially, but they'll shut them down. So that's mm-hmm. actually something that some of my other, uh, my actually published writer friends have mentioned is that if you're part of the convention circuit and you're not one of the people who are going to help everybody else out, they figure that out really quickly and they will, um, they'll, start ostracizing you because you're the one who is just going to take, 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 take and never give at all. Yeah. It's really easy both as a writer and a fan to let people walk all over you. If you continue to give to the people who only take, yeah. um, very hard, especially for us people pleasers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I found myself in conversations where a man assumes that I don't know what I'm talking about because I'm female, assumes that I am not a, a true Tolkien fan, for example, mm-hmm. and don't know what I'm talking about and don't know about his life. Um, and they will get to a point where you know, in, a, in an argument where someone gets to that point where they're backtracking some of the things they've said and and kind of turning it into, oh, well, I didn't mean that exactly. And so I, you are right about this. And I tend to just sort of uh, 
placate in that situation and say, yeah, okay, like, I'll let you feel like you won this conversation. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing for me to do because it's just a way to keep peace and to keep my own inner peace. But it also shows a kind of a dangerous territory that people can get in where um, they think, oh, this person is a better fan than me. And so I will let them feel superior. Well, that's that one sense. of the things that that kind of throws me is you mentioned somebody winning the conversation, and I think yeah. you know, really you're you're talking about like an argument mm-hmm. or something along those lines. But you know, just the fact that so many people see the world as a sum zero event. If you win, mm-hmm. I have to lose, and that's just absolutely not true. Yeah. You know, the the trick is really to find win win situations. You know, you and an author friend. Um, help each other out you and uh, a fandom friend help each other out you and a cosplay buddy Mm -hmm. help each other out with you know doing the next project or something and you both come out ahead well Mm -hmm. yeah so really i think i think one of the most toxic things is the idea that somebody has to lose for somebody to win that's just you know life's not poker it's not you know, it's not backgammon. You you can yeah. all win at the same time. Yeah. And this is true, not just in fantasy fandoms, but fandoms across the board yeah. where, I mean, people feel like they have to pretend to know things that yeah. they didn't actually know because they're worried that they'll be shamed. And, and that's a valid fear because there are people out there shaming others for not knowing something or not remembering something correctly or pronouncing something wrong and and they just get roasted yeah and it's just so ludicrous to me that like oh you're somehow superior because you happen to stumble across this random corner of the internet where you found out this thing and this person who didn't stumble on it is somehow inferior to you because they didn't discover it yeah like why not just share with people and be like hey i found out this cool thing let me share it with you yeah yeah gatekeeping has its own has its own issues anyway and i think in some ways that comes from something resembling that some zero mentality the yeah you know if you're a fan i can't be a fan kind of thing or something mm-hmm. like that or or i need to be the best fan yeah. Or I, I have to yeah. validate my own choices by tearing down yours or something. Yeah. And I, I, I just, you know, I guess if I'm really tired and, you know, like been exhausted for a few days or something, I might start slipping into some of these things. Gosh, mm-hmm. I hope I don't. Not not to that extent anyway. I mean, I, I think everyone at some point has felt superior for knowing something that yeah. someone else didn't. I think it's a really normal human thing. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, everybody has toxic traits. Everybody's done toxic things. We're not, we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. Yeah. Um, But the, the issue comes when it becomes a culture and it it does become a culture in the fandoms. Yeah. And that's something that has to be combated. Yeah. Like we're all going to slip up. We're all going to have off days, but there is a culture that's very prevalent. Yeah, that was one of the frustrating things for, um, I guess, Metallica after this latest season of Stranger Things came out, where yeah. you know, Eddie Munson has the has the moment on top of the uh, the trailer in the un, in the Upside Down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there were some gatekeeping fans who were like, "Well, if you mm-hmm. haven't been a fan for thirty years," and Metallica's like, "I don't care if you've been a fan for thirty years or or two hours, you're still a fan." back Mm -hmm. off um and it's i thought it was really pretty amazing to see um this group that obviously is pretty well known and pretty famous and you know at one point really did the we're tough and we're bad and et cetera et cetera kind of mentality or or put presented that picture and here they are like no no it's not that's not how it Mm -hmm. works I like that. I, yeah. I think that was good. I wish 
I wish more organizations would do that. Um, although I think writers are typically a little bit better about that than, than most others. Yeah. I think another issue with that is this feeling that you have to be all in or completely out. Yeah. Like you can't just be a fan of the one Metallica song that, that Eddie plays. Yeah. And you yeah. have to be a fan of all Metallica. And yeah. that's just sad. Like that if if your life is that narrow that you can only you only have time to be a fan of a couple things because you have to be in so deep yeah rather than being a, a fan of a variety of things yeah. that you get in as deep as you feel like getting yeah i've i've uh talking fan friends who are like what do you mean you haven't read the silmarillion how can you be a fan and i'm like well it was his working notes it wasn't <laughs> you know it it mm-hmm. was not canon none of it and so yeah. why like why would i get all worked up about having to read it and stuff mm-hmm. um i was i was surprised when when you said you hadn't read it yeah only because i i guess i'm used to in my family where uh all of my brothers and and brother-in-laws and everything are very into that mm-hmm. kind of behind the scenes stuff and it, it, to an extent where they turn this into almost a a chore i feel like <laughs> but yeah. it's not a chore for them they they enjoy that aspect of things and yeah so that i just assume you know everybody reads the cimmerillion because of that um and i mean i read it a long time ago but i don't remember much but i do remember that most of it went over my head yeah. And I didn't read it very attentively. Yeah. I think I tried. That I doesn't mean I'm not. It. I, yeah, I, I think I tried tackling it as a tween, to be honest with you. But, mm-hmm. you know, 11 or 12 or something, and just, you know, didn't really, didn't really stick. And then I, I had so many other things I wanted to do, and I still have so many yeah. other things I want to do and, and to read. And, you know, if I were to really look at my 2B red pile – proverbial to be red pile it's not actually stacked up in a pile um mm-hmm. it would probably take me a few years to get through it all so adding oh, yeah. in something new is gonna be a bear you know not something a lot... new that you're not even really interested yeah. in reading <laughs> yeah now what's interesting is i recently bought them like i bought um the unfinished tales and for some reason i mm-hmm. want to say the Silmarillion is part of that but i'm not sure um mm. You know, if I'm wrong on that, guys, you don't have to send me hate mail. I get it. It's totally fine. <laughs> um, and if I am... People can be wrong about things and yeah. not be terrible yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, but, you know, I've got it and and probably eventually I'll get to it. But like right now with this MFA program and me looking at all these things that I have to read for school, my my pleasure writing time is pretty precious so yeah absolutely yeah i i am very choosy about the books i read for pleasure reading because i read so much for study yeah um and, and it's novels it's not like i'm reading textbooks when i say reading for study um as an author you sometimes read to study the craft And you're going through and you're taking notes and you're paying attention to narrative elements and storytelling elements and craft elements. Um, And it, it, it's enjoyable for me personally to do that, but it's not the same as relaxing with a true pleasure read book. And I just don't have as much time anymore to do that because I do need to study craft. Um, but I I do make time for it, and I am very choosy about what I'll read for yeah. pleasure. Yeah, we kind. Of, I mean, I think in general in life, you know, most people have so many things going on. You just we all have to be really selective about what we what we do and mm-hmm. don't do uh, with our time. Yeah, and that's why I do audiobooks for really long series and novels, like. Yeah. Um, I'm listening to the Stormlight Archives mm-hmm. and to Wheel of Time 
because I just don't have time to sit down and read them. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. So, um, you know, but, you know, knowing where you're at on that and not treating other people badly for being different is really what being a good fan is, I think. Or yeah. Being a good member of fandom. Um, mm-hmm. And I do think I actually do think everybody kind of has a social responsibility of being a decent person in whatever yeah. setting they're in, because it's one of those things that that's the way society works. It's the only way we can make society work is mm-hmm. if everybody's kind of trying to pull from one side of the rope. Yeah. Um, I want to kind of turn the conversation a little bit to um, rather than fans, how fans treat fans um, a little bit about how fans treat the artist, mm. because there is a sense of entitlement mm-hmm. a lot of times. Um, I, when I was just kind of looking through like um, briefly fandoms and how f- fans should behave most of what I found was about how fans treat an artist, um, usually music, because that I think music is a huge one where people get really uh, intense. Yeah. And there was a, a Vice article that was a little bit satirical, and it had like the do's and don'ts of being a fan. And the don'ts was basically like, don't kill people. <laughs> like, don't don't kill yourself or your family and don't kill the artist because you're upset about something they're not giving you. Yeah. Um, which was obviously an exaggeration. But I think that's some. Hey, listeners. When we recorded this episode, there was a little bit of a technical issue and we lost the second half of my side of the conversation. So we are going to re record that part today. Um, So I apologize in advance if there's any information that gets repeated or if it seems a little bit uh, disjointed. Um, And I also apologize for the state of my voice right now. My family just moved and I think the stress just killed my voice for some reason. Um, But anyway, here we are talking about fandoms again and being a good fan citizen Yeah, this is such an interesting topic to me. I mean, you know, some fans will completely and utterly defend their favorite creators, no matter what. They'll edify Mm -hmm. them. um, And it's just, well, it goes beyond edification. They'll canonize them almost, you know, they'll deify them to some extent. And it's very strange to me. And then others are I don't know how they call themselves fans. They they mm-hmm. they can be so cruel, so mean, and so dismissive. And I really feel like there should be something in the middle where we mm-hmm. actually uh, treat people like human beings and um, and support their work. Yeah, it's similar to I mean how celebrities in general are treated by the public. Yeah, they're yeah treated as not human either godlike or as less than human yeah um and yeah it's it's kind of a depressing life to have if that's how the whole world sees you is one of those two ways yeah and then you know they, they get treated very very strangely and and then people flip out when they they do things to set boundaries to you know try to salvage some kind of a personal life themselves um and it's it's really strange sometimes so you know as i said before what do you do right right um and on the topic of authors not owing us anything let's talk a little bit about fans being impatient for the next book to come out or fans being upset with how something was written um, and maybe more appropriate ways of expressing that upset than being demeaning towards the artist. Um, one example being the Game of Thrones series and the final book that is still, as far as I know, not written yet. Yeah, so I think there's supposed to be two more books, Dance of Dragons and then uh, Promise of Spring. Um, mm-hmm. 
yeah, that one, that one's going to be tough. I think where people get really frustrated is they see uh, George doing all this other stuff. They see him doing, you know, helping with video games, writing mm-hmm. uh, short stories and novellas and all of these other projects. And they're like, well, what about us? What about the this thing that we've been waiting for for over a decade already? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think it just comes down to well, I don't know. Obviously, I don't know exactly what's going on in George's head or, or you know, what he's struggling with or if he's struggling at all or, or what, mm-hmm. you know, and I kind of see it as none of my business. But the, the way people treat him um, because of this perceived thing that he owes them mm-hmm. is is really kind of. I don't know. I it's it's kind of terrible in a way. Mm-hmm. Um some of the commentary that we get and some of the names that he gets called. Yeah. I see it on a smaller scale with content creators who come on YouTube or TikTok or whatever platform and talk about their mental health and having to step back from mm-hmm. creating content because of the pressure mm-hmm. of creating new content on pretty much a daily basis, sometimes weekly. Um, but a lot of content creators feel pressure from their fans to be creating constantly. And it's usually a schedule that isn't possible to maintain. Um, but we live in this world where everything's instantaneous, right? We have so much entertainment at our fingertips and we're not used to having to wait for things anymore. And, you know, granted 10 years is a very long time, but, um, it, it's okay to be frustrated. Yeah. Just not to, you know, treat somebody horribly because you feel like yeah they owe you something. Yeah, that one. Yeah, it 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 always bothers me. Um, you know, there's what three authors that I can think of that people are waiting on stuff for. There's the two big ones that I think most epic fantasy uh, fans or people in the fandom in general are going to know, you know, George R. R. Martin and Patrick Rothfuss, of course, being the Mm -hmm. big two. Um, Saladin Ahmed is another one. Um, Saladin has written a, um, what was supposed to be the first book of a series, maybe a trilogy that is rather than a Eurocentric epic fantasy is an Arab centric epic fantasy. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful. It's brilliant. It's really kind of gruesome at points. That's the world that he's trying to build. And um, he hasn't published anything for that in years and years and years and years. And he writes comic books and stuff now. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, as somebody who really enjoyed that first book and somebody who talked with him, you know, at a convention about where he's going with the next book and got really excited about it. You know, I would love to see the next one come out. I would love to see the, the series get finished see what happens with these characters that I kind of remember now. I think it's been about 10 years since I've read it, but um, you know, it's not my decision to make. It's not my life. Mm-hmm. Right. And if an author, you know, tries read the writing, the novel thing and figures out that it's not where they're happy and they switch gears in their career, then that's, what's best for them and you have to respect that they're doing what's best for them and their mental health and their career yeah no one wants to be stuck doing something that they don't enjoy doing not not to suggest that or assume that that's why he switched but um if that you know hypothetically happened where the next book never came out because they decided to drop that project you know, you can be frustrated. You can write fan fiction for it, um, read fan fiction for it, um, and fill that need to mm-hmm. know what happens next. And mm-hmm. just respect the fact that they're a human being and they have their reasons and you're not entitled to know what those reasons are even. Yeah, it's really odd to me when, when people who have never gone through this process are like, why aren't you pushing out books every every year? You know, um, in the height of um, the Harry Potter series being published, 
people were raging. I would say around the third or fourth book, people were raging that they weren't getting a book a year. And they were, people literally were saying things like, you said, you promised, you were going to do a book a year. And Rowling, of course, was like, what? What are you talking about? So, you know, any other issues aside um, with that entire franchise and, and the author, you know, it, it really brings up a great point or a really good example. You know, people get it in their head when they, they think something and then they just mm-hmm. absolutely have to have that become true or, or they expect they, they base these expectations on something that somebody's literally made up. Mm. The publishing process alone from starting at the point where the book is already written and completed. Yeah. There's a completed manuscript and then the process that takes that completed manuscript to the bookshelves and to readers that alone can take a year. Yeah. Not even including the actual writing. Yeah. And if you want shitty books, then yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A book a year. (laughs) Yeah. One of the Wheel of Time, one of the later Wheel of Time books, I think maybe it was the second to last one that um, Robert Jordan, RJ himself wrote, um, did not get a full editorial cycle. It was pushed out pretty fast and it Mm -hmm. suffered for it. And everybody knew it. Once it was published and um, well, I'm sure I'm sure the editor and um, and RJ and Harriet, well, Harriet being the editor, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I think they everybody involved with it was like, yeah, this is we're taking a really big chance here. And um, and they knew it was going to cause some problems, but they yeah. wanted to get a book out very quickly. Um, mm-hmm. And so when the last book was was finished, the manuscript was finished. There was I mean, there was an actual specific promise to the fandom, the Wheel of Time fans saying this is going to get a very thorough, very full editorial cycle so that mm-hmm. we can catch all this stuff. You know, right. sorry about last time, but... Yeah. And things can go a, a bit faster, quite a bit faster, actually, in the self-publishing world. Yes. But it also doesn't necessarily go as fast as people think it does. Yeah. Because a lot of times when authors put out a book books from a series one right after the other in a rapid rapid pace it's because they wrote the entire series first before even releasing yeah the first book i have a friend writing a a fantasy series and she's at 80k words for her first one at this point and there's still like six more chapters that Mm -hmm. she has to write for it um and she wants to write all of the books in the series before releasing. Yeah. Um, because, you know, writing 80K words per book, that takes a long time. Yeah. And since she wants to self-publish, she doesn't want to lose fans in that time between. Yeah. Um, there's there's an algorithmic issue here as well. So um, Amazon, also other creators uh, or other creative spaces such as YouTube, for those YouTube um, video creators, content creators there, the algorithm will specifically um, reward people who publish regularly. Mm -hmm. So if you publish once a week, you're more likely to get, or I guess at least once a week, you're more likely to get in front of people's faces than if you publish once a year or something. Now, with Amazon, if you publish regularly um, through Kindle for whether it's once a month or once every other month, I think you could push it out to once a quarter and still be okay, but it really, really helps the algorithm. So even I have considered like writing six or 12 books and publishing them one a month or one every other Mm month, um, specifically to get the algorithm to work for me. Yeah. And there's, uh, some, uh, full-time writers who are very successful on Amazon with self-publishing who will essentially create two different um, approaches and processes where they have, where they're writing short romances um, and just cranking those out, you know, Mm -hmm. a couple, a few a year. And then they have 
their fantasy stuff that takes more time, takes a lot more attention, a lot more planning, um, a lot more work in general. And that will be a slower release of publishing. Mm. But their their name as an author at least gets the algorithm on their side as they're publishing these romances. And they can just publish them um, through Kindle Unlimited and get paid for page reads. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, is a great way of, yeah. of doing things if that's the direction an author wants to go in. Yeah. Um, I, you know, people get real, obviously people get frustrated and like, why isn't this, you know, why can't you just do this? And, you know, financial reality says that unfortunately sometimes we have to do things very differently than what a fan, a regular fan might expect. Um, you know, given the last few years, as I've learned about not just writing, but the entire publishing industry and the self-publishing following some friends and their sagas, I've I've realized that, yeah, me as a fan, I understood things very, very differently as me as somebody who's starting to really get into the industry or is starting to understand the industry a little bit more. So, yeah, it's it's a totally different thing. So anybody out there who is like, well, why can't this happen? Well, dig around a little bit um, and and you'll kind of be shocked. Like people, people still need to eat. They still need to, you know, feed their kids. They need to keep a roof over their family's head. And unfortunately, that will often mean picking up other work um, until somebody is a decently paid, at least mid-list author. Um mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a lot harder than you think. Yeah. It's a very small percentage of authors who get big enough that they can comfortably live off of just what they make writing yeah. as an author. Yeah. Uh, that was interesting. There was a really uh, Brandon uh Sanderson and I talked Brandon and I talked about this a long time ago. He he had mentioned how he had met uh, his wife, Emily, um, obviously, you know, when they first met and they were not married mm-hmm. or anything, but they, I think they were moving in that direction. And I asked, it was like, you know, how was that as a new writer? And he was like, I was actually already making a living as a writer. So it wasn't a big shock. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, by the way, I am a writer. I, you know, I work, I work overnight at a hotel as a night clerk and, and I'm mm-hmm. a writer and I'm trying to make it. So I'm going to quit my job or something like that. Like that, that wasn't what was going on. He was already able to bring in enough of an income to take care of the two of them. Um, And I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is. Um, He's an anomaly, though, (laughs) for sure. Well, he's this generation's anomaly because there were, you know, Piers Anthony was putting out a couple of books a year for decades Mm-hmm. Um, you know, S.M. Sterling has done the same thing. Um, George mm-hmm. used to do that. He used to do a, like a book or two a year, I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a uh, when he was a quote unquote midlist author when he was there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's um, people have done it. It's just Brandon has this huge name recognition. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of that's the advent of the internet and being able to do certain mm-hmm. things that Piers Anthony couldn't do 25, 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Let's shift a little bit to social media, um, technology in general, mm-hmm. and sort of the pros and cons of that and how that can either foster a positive and healthy fandom community or be due to um being anonymous or at least not having a face in front of you a real person in front of you um could can lead and often does lead to some pretty poor uh treatment of of other people yeah yeah so my thought with social media in general is it it's a lot like the internet in general in that Mm -hmm. if you're not using it for you it's going to be used against you mm-hmm. you know if you're not not controlling it necessarily but m- managing it at the very least then you uh then you're hurting yourself yeah 
it's unfortunately the reality that authors these days have to have a social media presence um, as a general rule. Obviously, there are exceptions, but yeah. for the most part, authors need to be active on social media. Yeah. And they have to deal with all kinds of hate and and just general assholery on a daily basis. Um, and something that you mentioned when we recorded last time is that even if your nasty tweet doesn't get seen by Neil Gaiman or, you know, one of those bigger authors that doesn't have time to read every tweet they're tagged in. Um, it doesn't mean that your, your friends don't see it. And that can damage your relationships with the people that you do know personally. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people are going to have the attitude of, well, you know, they they know I'm right or something like that. So it doesn't matter. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's a lot of other people out there who are going to be seeing it. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're just you're showing your butt, you know, and yep. definitely don't try to break into the industry if that's how you treat writers. Because yeah. it gets figured out very quickly and you will get cut off from other help and the like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no one wants to work with someone who could at any moment turn around and badmouth you. Yeah. It's not a pleasant thing. Yeah. I mean, I've had, you know, friends in the past who talked about other people and gossiped, essentially. And, you know, it just, what it said to me was that there was nothing stopping from them from doing the same thing to me. Mm-hmm. And that breaks trust. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a thing about leadership that says if if your team, if the people who work for you don't have a really good idea of how you're going to react to something, then there's an issue here. You know, there's mm-hmm. a real problem and you're not going to be able to gain their trust. You're not going to be able to build trust within that team. And mm-hmm. it's absolutely true. If if you're If you could go flying off the handle about something, then... Everybody knows at some point you are likely to fly off the handle at them. Mm -hmm. That leads perfectly into this idea of, um, let me just turn my page here, of a fandom mentor and how we can, instead of uh, having that superiority complex that we mentioned in the first half of this, um, episode be the kind of person that welcomes and embraces the new fans and makes them feel included yeah um i think that it's just in general the community can be very welcoming and it can be you know the place where you find your your chosen family where you find the people that you can relate to um, connecting over fantasy, I think, is a is a really great way to bond, especially if you grew up and being isolated, yeah. which a lot of fantasy fans have been. Well, um, also keep in mind, in general, people will react to I was treated really badly at one point in one of two ways. They're going to say I was treated really badly at one point, so everybody else deserves to be, too. Mm-hmm. Or I was treated really badly at one point and I'm going to make sure nobody else is. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that gets uh, that definitely gets a little sticky. It's one of the things that's interesting to me. Um, a real world example of this was how badly the Vietnam vets were treated when they came home, um, not necessarily even by the American public, but by the World War Two and Korean War veterans who basically said things like, you're not real veterans. You didn't fight in a real war. Mm-hmm. And they kind of banded together and were like, we are not ever going to allow that to happen again in the United States. Um, yeah. That was kind of their attitude. And they took care of each other as much as they could. Um, that's where welcome home comes from. Uh, they would say that to people, uh, say that to one another when they would first get home, things along those lines. And I think a lot of where we um, almost uncomfortably appreciate military service now in the United States actually comes from that. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm just, you know, 
we can absolutely do that in fandom as well. We can do those kinds of things. And some some fandoms or some specific subgroups of the fandom are doing that kind of thing. But yeah, getting everybody into it would be kind of nice sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I, I think at least for me personally, it helps to keep that in mind. Because obviously when we have um, traumatic histories or at the very least... Um, sad histories or something that's influencing how we're behaving Mm -hmm. we don't always respond perfectly nobody can respond the right way every single time and we all mess up and make mistakes and um it makes it easier for me if i'm being treated poorly by another person if i try to think about what has happened in their life that might be causing some of that behavior and it doesn't excuse it. And it doesn't mean that I have to sit there and take it and let them walk all over me. Um, which, uh, yeah, I, I do struggle with that sometimes, but (laughs) I'm trying my best. I'm working on that. Um, and you, you don't have to let people walk all over you just because they've experienced some horrible things in their life, but it does help you to feel like, you know, it's not your problem. It's not because of you you're not a certain way and that's why they're treating you that way. It's their own stuff that they have going on and you can, you know, not internalize that when they're treating you that way and separate yourself from it. Yeah. Yeah. Understanding where something is coming from does help to, uh, to give context to it, which makes it easier to understand and easier Mm -hmm. to kind of, get past over time doesn't mean it doesn't still hurt in the moment but yeah 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 i agree yeah i think i think you make a good point there mm-hmm. and you know we focused a lot on some of the issues that happen but there is a lot of positivity and great things about the fantasy fandom yeah. and the more that we can nur- nurture those things the more we can not only avoid being a bad like a mean nasty person in general and actively reach out to people and actively be a welcoming person within the community yeah the more we will be able to foster that positive culture yeah and hopefully over time increase that positive culture and decrease some of the negative culture that goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It makes it, it, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, it is something we can continue to work on, Um, you know, but people being people, there's always going to be a gatekeeper or two. Um, Yeah. And unfortunately you're going to run into them pretty often, but you just kind of go around them and and do your thing anyway um, Mm -hmm. as best you can. Yeah. And everyone will slip up at some point too. And yeah. yeah. And do things that we regret. And you just have to own it. Apologize if you can, if you ha- still have um, contact with somebody um, and are able to apologize. And then just move on and try and be better next time. You yeah. don't have to get down on yourself and decide. Oh, I I was mean, and I I'm I can never be redeemed from that. Yeah, I you know the last time I can remember that I snapped at somebody, it was it was bad, um, you know, mm. and I definitely shouldn't have done it. And the two people that I snapped at definitely definitely did not deserve it. And so sometimes you just have to take a step back and say, yeah, okay, I'm the one who's being the jerk now. Great, it's mm-hmm. my turn in the barrel let's let's get this fixed like you said so yep and there's definitely been times where i've gotten that um i don't want to say high necessarily but i guess maybe a, a dopamine uh spike from feeling superior because i I'm a big, I feel like I'm a bigger fan or yeah. i know more than somebody else yeah. and i think it's a really natural thing for humans to experience, but I think we can get the same dopamine high from being a helper and being welcoming and 
just embracing a new fan in and being that sort of fandom mentor to them. And maybe possibly, I, I believe that the dopamine high is even better and even higher and more lasting when you do it that way. Yeah, helping to take care of people definitely is a uh, is a really powerful motivator to continue to help people. I mean, it just feels mm-hmm. good. Um, you know, I like helping to take care of people. It's my selfish reason for doing it most of the time. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I take a lot of joy out of it or from it, I guess. Hopefully I don't take the joy out of the situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, before we end this episode, I want to bring up something that we talked about last time because I just thought it was a, a really great moment in our conversation. Um, we talked about kindness and how it's not only the person who gives kindness and the person who experiences the kindness mm-hmm. who receives it mm-hmm. that then continue passing that forward. Mm-hmm. It's also the people who witness yeah. the kindness happening. Um, I pass this certain um, road on the way getting on the on-ramp to the freeway after I dropped my daughter off at school, or at least I used to at the old house we lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very hard for that those cars to turn right onto this road because it's very busy. And I've noticed that it only takes one person to stop and let the person let someone through for people to start, you know, doing that every time. So one person does it, the car after them does it, the car after them does it. And it just takes one person doing it first. Um, And then, and you brought up Simon uh, Sinek Mm -hmm. and his little video on witnessing kindness and the science behind that. And we'll link that in the show notes because I did go and watch that video yeah. and it's awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. Simon Simon understands leadership um, in ways that I think most people just never will. Like he gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has studied companies and he's studied mm-hmm. um, nonprofit organizations. He's studied the military and all these other things. And, you know, he just keeps showing up to, to help and to serve. And, mm-hmm. and that's that's a big part of it, too, is, um, mm-hmm. you know, so people wouldn't necessarily think that doing a random act of kindness that is witnessed by other people is a part of leadership. But it most definitely is on a on a social level rather than on a uh, a, a a financial level or a corporate level, mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, a job level or something. Absolutely. So that's our time for today. We've been your hosts, Ludlow Adams. And J.S. Garrity. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next week for a new topic about the world of fiction. This has been We're Lying, But That's Okay. Big thanks to our listeners for your support. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review. Thank you to our one-man production and tech support team, Max Garrity for making this podcast possible.